All right, so this morning we are back in Acts chapter 1. If you got your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 1. And uh, I, I, want, I want to start by saying that like this book, the book of Acts, and the, as the second book of Luke, is such an incredible gift. Like I, I think that too often we, we treat it like, oh, there's this thing that's been around for a couple thousand years, and it's just there, and it, it requires us to read it and to learn it and to be shaped by it. But I want you to think about the book of Luke and Acts as a gift of this guy named Luke to the entire world where he spent years and years collecting stories, writing them down, verifying them, speaking with eyewitnesses, and then putting it together in a cohesive story to share with us this vital thing. I, I just think it's, it's an incredible gift to us. Um, and actually, we're going to start at the first part of Luke. If you can turn with me to Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Because you get the purpose of the books, both books together at the beginning. And this is what it says. Oh, I got it right here. Okay. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So he's saying, we've received all of these stories from the apostles and they were such a gift. And this, this is what he, he then does with them. It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. Okay, what Luke is saying is that he wrote this history so that this friend would be certain of what he had heard, that there wouldn't be any question in his mind, and hopefully as we read it, we start to get that same sense of certainty that we know who Christ was, we know what he did, and we know how his church worked in those early days. All right, now you can go back to the book of Acts. So the disciples, they have, um, they have, watched Jesus die. They've watched Jesus raise from the dead. And then Jesus gathers them again at the Mount of Olivet, which is right outside of Jerusalem. And he has these important words to tell them. Um, we'll see. Okay. So when they come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now we've talked about this a lot over the year, but, um, the disciples were distinctively still had this vision of what Jesus was going to do in, in their mind. What was it? That Jesus was going to overthrow the Caesar, overthrow Rome, take over the, the kingdom of Judea that was ruled by this pagan fake Jew Herod, push him off, and then take control and establish the forever kingdom of Israel. And why did they stick around? Honestly, I think the disciples stuck around and stuck through it because they were still pretty sure that they were going to get a sweet gig in this new kingdom. They were kind of, uh, it's a lot like at the end of a, a political campaign. Everybody jumps in and does whatever they can. Why? Not because they want that guy to win, but because if that guy wins, then they get a sweet gig in the government, okay? I think the disciples still had that in mind as they, they knew that the kingdom was coming. They wanted to be a part of this important moment, and they wanted to see it. And so they're still, they're still really not getting what's happening here, okay? And I'm sure Jesus was like, oh, man, 
and, and you got to imagine Jesus is about to hand over the keys to this kingdom to these knuckleheads who don't understand what's going on. It's, it's kind of like when you're about to give your keys to your kid and you see on his phone, yeah, see you tonight. We're going to get so wasted. And you're about to give your keys to the kid and you're like, this is a bad idea. You know that, that, I don't know if you've ever done that. I just imagine there's some parents who are like, I know my kid needs to grow up and be released, but this seems like such a bad idea. I'm certain Jesus felt that about the disciples because they still didn't get it. They're saying, okay, so Jesus, now that you died and you rose again, okay, it's time, right? We're going to do this thing. The kingdom's going to get established. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Basically, he's saying, just forget about, I know that you want this thing to happen, but that's not what I'm doing. He's still just like, that's not now. It's not time for that. There's, there's an important thing happening here. Just when uh, I have three little kids, they're always asking me, when, when, when? Dad, can I? Dad, can I? Dad, can I? Are we, Elsie started on the road trips. Are we there yet? How much further? We tell her it's like three TV shows or one movie. You know, like you, you break it down in that sort of way. And, and they're like, okay, Jesus, when is, you know, the kingdom going to start? And he's like, three movies, maybe four. He's, he's trying to like give them, there's no, they don't get it yet. Okay, but he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I like that he used the word but. He's like, you don't know the times or the seasons that the Father has set, but you will receive power. Okay, and I, using an adversative like but in this situation is not saying that the kingdom isn't coming. What it's saying is that you're not expecting this, but this is what the kingdom looks like now. The kingdom looks like the Holy Spirit, and you don't even realize this, but Pentecost is coming. It's going to radically upset the world order, and it's going to transform you into what you were meant to be. The Holy Spirit is coming, and it's going to change everything. And when the Holy Spirit comes into you, you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the earth. Okay. Eyewitnesses. Who here has ever been an eyewitness in a civil or a criminal action? Anybody in here? Okay. One, two. I didn't ask defendants. I asked witnesses. <laughs> There's, there's a few of you who have, who have given witness testimony. I've been thinking a lot about this, but eyewitnesses are the only type of truth claim that we still have in the world. Every type of fact and truth comes from eyewitness testimony. How does that work? Well, think about science. What is science? It's the observations of a set of individuals who say that they did an experiment, they experienced something, and here's what that means. So every single scientific claim is an expert saying, I experienced this in a way that I think is verifiable. All science. What does that look like in history? Well, if you've ever hung out with historians, they talk about how thankful they are for things like primary documents 
What are primary documents? It's somebody who at the time was taking concurrent notes that were basically an eyewitness who experienced something and then wrote it down. Because who hear diaries every day about most of their experiences? Very few of us. And when someone does and a historian finds it, basically what it does is it allows them to find an eyewitness who have, has given account that they can draw from to make a claim. So all of history, everything you read in a history book, is somebody interpreting these eyewitness accounts. Okay? In our legal system, when you have substantial evidence, like a, a piece of physical evidence, how do we corroborate that that evidence is what they say it is? It's called the chain of custody. What is the chain of custody? It's a group of people who say, I found this in this place. I took it. I put it in this place, gave it to this person, made sure that we had a good process so that it wasn't contaminated and then was given to this person, this person, this person. So even our physical evidence received as evidence happens because eyewitnesses saw where it was and can verify its truth. Eyewitness testimony is the basis of every truth claim in the universe. And from an ancient lens, they didn't have modern technologies to record things. Even, you, you have to imagine in the first century, a piece of paper cost about a week's wages, okay? So like just one parchment that you could write something down on costs an enormous amount of money. More than you can really imagine when you buy a piece of paper for less than a cent today, okay? And in that time, when they wrote things down, it was only the most important things. And you could only bring a legal action if you had eyewitnesses. There was not access to any sort of evidence outside of eyewitness testimony. So eyewitnesses were incredibly vital to understanding truth. Now, what is this word witness that Luke uses in Greek? I'm not going to ask you, but what it is is martus, M-A-R-T-U-S, martus, witness. How have we brought that into the English language? What word do we use that's really close to that? Martyr. That's where we get the word martyr. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes. Okay. So let's look at verse 8 one more time here. It says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. The only way that this story could be transmitted was through the lived lives, the fleshy existence of these people bearing it to the world. They take it on as a part of who they are, and everywhere they go, they can share with the people their experiences as eyewitnesses. That's the only way that any sort of movement moves forward is that people say, this is what I experienced, this is what I heard, this is what I saw, and this is what it's meant to me. Now, we're going to dive into, um, let's see, verse 12. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to dive into the next story that I've always thought of as a strange little aside story. It's about the choosing of the 12th disciple to replace Judas but I want you to read it in light of the importance of the eyewitnesses. This is what it says in verse 12 of chapter 1. 
Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these were with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Then we're going to jump forward a little bit. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, verse 15, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now I'm going to skip a couple verses because it's about Judas and his guts spilling out in a field. It's weird, okay? So let's jump forward to verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all that time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbath, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry, an apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Okay, so this is a funny little story. I've always thought of it as like a Luke was being a little too thorough. Like he really just wanted to tell this little story about Matthias. And uh, when I heard it, I immediately thought, this is finally a way that I can get my dad to get off my back about playing poker because obviously the disciples even let chance decide who was going to be the 12th disciple. So I can use chance to decide how much money I'm going to take from my friends. It seemed like a good way for me to justify using chance even in how I approached God. But this story is about something different than that. It's a really strange story. So why was it so important to disciples to have 12 instead of 11? Any ideas? Is it a big difference? It's about a 9% difference. 12 versus 11. Any ideas? There's 12 tribes of Israel. So why do they need one disciple per tribe? The tribes aren't even really still together anymore. They lost a lot of them along the way. Yes. Yeah, of course, Andy. You, you always get it. <laughs> yes, that is exactly what it is. So the disciples, there was 12 of them for a reason. Why was there 12 disciples of Jesus? Because they were going to be the representatives of the people of Israel. Just like in Genesis 15, when God tells Abraham that he is going to make his descendants a blessing to all the nations. This whole time they were waiting for Israel to finally do that thing. It doesn't just come in Christ. Christ is obviously the fulfillment of Israel. And we looked at how in the Gospels, a year and a half ago, we actually looked at how in the Gospels, Jesus was showing that he is the true Israel and that he was the one who fulfilled all the promises for Israel and to Israel. But what we see is that the disciples then are sent as representatives of Israel. The 12 of them. 
So when Judas betrays Jesus and isn't faithful to the covenant that God has made, they must find one more. It's meant to show us that is this is the new Israel. This is the new kingdom of God that is becoming what it was always meant to be. In some ways, and this is controversial, but they were kind of taking Israel's place. They were becoming the new Israel that was promised from times past. Um, now, we also see that there's a promise here from, uh, actually two promises from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, where we see that um, there's, there's these two little quotes that are, one is about um, Judas and his, his field and let no one dwell in it, and the other is let another take his office. And they saw that as a promise that they needed to fulfill. They knew this psalm. It was on their hearts. And they're like, if there is an office that's open, we need to fill it. And so we need to decide who's going to take that role. That's an important thing. But it, more than that, there was going to come a time when each of these disciples would give their lives, except John by tradition, each of them would give their lives as witnesses. They would tell the truth in such a powerful way that other people would say, this is a threat to me and this is a threat to my power. And so I'm going to destroy this witness, hoping that if they destroy that witness, the story will die with that witness. That's always the hope of the martyr, right? Is that if I just kill this witness, just ask the mob, just ask both of our political parties. If you kill the right people, they can't tell the story that's inconvenient to you. And so why did they need 12? Well, it turns out they'd need all 12. Those 12 would need to be the ones who are the bearers of the stories of Jesus, who can authenticate the words of Luke, who can authenticate the words of Mark, who can authenticate the words of Matthew. They were the bearers of the story. And so they needed Matthias to make sure that this story would not be held back from its destiny of transforming the world. This is not just an unimportant little anecdote. If there are no eyewitnesses, did it really happen? We, we've all heard that, that famous line, if a tree falls in the forest and no one sees it, no one hears it, did it make a sound, did it really happen? The answer is, in our world, if it's not witnessed by a human, it's hard to verify that it happened. There's no one who can hold up that truth as something that they experienced themselves. And so the eyewitnesses were God's way of protecting the story of Jesus by giving it this, not, not just one eyewitness, not just two eyewitnesses, not just three eyewitnesses, but 12 eyewitnesses. Now, what we also find in our legal system, and you could, you could literally spend the rest of your life reading stories about how, how eyewitnesses have been wrong in our criminal justice system. Our prisons are full of people who are wrongfully convicted by eyewitness testimony. It is not as reliable as all of us imagine. A single eyewitness. But... When you have 12 people witnessing the same thing, you can reconstruct the truthfulness of something with a much higher degree of accuracy. 
12 witnesses bring about a fuller picture than a single witness. That's one of the reasons why we have four Gospels in our Bibles and why they're all different. They, some of them drew from some of the same sources and some of the same stories from the same disciples. But these witnesses having four Gospels gives us a fuller picture of who Jesus was and what he was doing. And 12 disciples gave the world a full picture of who Jesus was and what he was doing. And so if James was walking along and he misquoted Jesus, what would happen? Peter will say, no, you're, you're remembering that wrong. And John will say, yeah, Peter's right. That's probably unlikely, but that's maybe what happened is they could verify for each other the truth of what they said. And lastly, this in terms of witnessing. Witnesses are incredibly important because without them, it's hard to see anything make a difference in the world. You have to have people embody a message. Otherwise, our computers have access to hundreds of trillions of messages that are digitally stored in all sorts of media that's available for us. And none of those matter. The messages that make a difference are embodied by people who have been transformed by them. They get their power by people's lives living them out. And so these witnesses weren't just a nice thing to have, but they were vital to the plan of God. God's plan for the kingdom to grow and to transform the world is to tell the world through eyewitnesses. And that's still his plan today. Uh, Did you notice how Matthias got picked in this story? He got the short stick. He got the short end of the stick. You ever thought about that? Like, well, that's, that's what we, what do we mean when we say you got the short end of the stick? What's that? I couldn't hear you. A raw deal. Yeah. Like, literally, there's a, there's a bad job that a group of people together have to do, and one of them has to do it. So what do you do? You take out three sticks, and you, whoever's holding them probably rigs it so that they give it to the three, and then they randomly choose them, and the short stick is the one who has to do the job. What happens in this story? Matthias gets the short end of the stick. As witnesses of Christ, it isn't quite the short end of the stick that we all imagine. It's the short end of the stick in that it's hard. It's going to cost us something really valuable. Uh, it's it's, it's more work and it's more dangerous than we realize. But Matthias got to be the one that God used to bring this eyewitness account to the world. So the short end of the stick turns out to be the one that matters the most. Not only do we tell, not only do we tell the stories that we have seen ourselves, but we tell stories that we hear from trusted people. So um, for those of you who have played telephone, there's obviously this degradation of a message that happens over time, okay? And with eyewitnesses, that's the same thing. But there's a certain group of stories that I tell to my friends because I've experienced them myself, and there's a certain group of stories that I tell because my friends, my trusted friends, the ones I know who are not full of crap, 
those stories I receive and then I tell them because they're valuable and they're important and they're funny and they're crazy, but they're, they're important stories that I receive. And so eyewitnesses are not just the ones that first generation, but everyone that they entrust the story of the gospel to become then one of those martus, one of those witnesses. They're no longer eyewitnesses, but they're witnesses to the account. They received from these faithful men. They received from these 12 eyewitnesses a full picture of what God had done, how Jesus had worked, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. So they could say, I saw with my own eyes. And then it receives into a community who then bears witness long-term to the truthfulness of what happens. Your story. Each of the people who received these eyewitness accounts, they were transformed by them. Their lives were taken hold of by this Jesus. And when they did that, they not only had the story that they had received, but then they had their own story to tell. They became witnesses of the Holy Spirit's power to transform their lives from the inside out and become witnesses to Jesus' power to work in the world. And that's what God wants to do with us today. We see Christ transform us, and we share that story as martus, as witnesses. Eyewitness accounts are a threat to the status quo. They're a threat to other people. Why? Because eyewitness accounts and witnesses are powerful. How do you refute the evidence of an eyewitness? Well, you try to impeach their character. You try to get them to not show up in court. <laughs> you threaten to break their knees. I'm, I'm just, I've, I've watched a lot of mob movies. I, I know, I just watched a movie on Jimmy Hoffa, the Irishman, learned all sorts of ways to really put the screws to your enemies. Um, but this is what happens with witnesses. Witnesses are a threat to anybody who don't want that truth to get out. And this, what happened with Jesus, is a threat to every system in the world because it makes a claim on every human being that when the gospel comes in, it transforms everything. And so if it's true, you've got to deal with it. So if I can just take care of the witnesses, if I can intimidate them, if I can threaten them, if I can threaten their families, if I can kill them, then they no longer have the power to threaten me. Because eyewitnesses are hard to refute. It's hard to say to anybody else, your story isn't true. And that's why you as a witness are so important to the world today. Because what you have experienced with Christ, no one can refute. Your story of a transformed life and the peace and the flourishing that happened because of Christ's work in you. His work in you is so powerful because no one can refute that what Jesus did in you matters, is important, and is available to everyone else. We are called to be these martus, these witnesses. Your story is still important to a skeptical world. Your understanding of these eyewitnesses is still powerful to a skeptical world. I can walk through the evidence for why I think that the scriptures are true. I can give you historical legal evidence that show that it's been well-preserved. 
I can walk you through and I can translate from the Greek each chapter and verse of the New Testament to show you how true and vital it is. I can walk you through every errant manuscript and why those things happened. I can show you the evidence outside of the Bible for this Jesus movement in the first century. But my story is powerful because it means that this story still matters. My story is powerful because when I tell you that when God met me as a 19-year-old and transformed my heart, that my life has been radically altered in a way that has brought joy and peace and a transformed life, that story is still powerful because no one can refute it. And it's also a roadmap to belief. When I share my story of how I worked through all of the evidence, of how I experienced the truthfulness of it and how it transformed my life, when I share that with somebody, it helps them see how they can move from unbelief to belief. It helps them see that they could be a part of this story. It helps them see that the eyewitnesses weren't just there to proclaim the truth, but to proclaim that the truth had set them free. That just like their Messiah, when he comes, he doesn't bring death and destruction, but he brings life and brings an abundant life. I want to ask you this question because we're here as a community to be witnesses to this story. That's why we exist. That's why we show up on Sunday mornings is to proclaim to anybody who will show up in the world around us that Jesus is risen and it means everything. So I want you to take a second right now and ask these questions. And you have an assignment, so you might want to get something out to write with or your phone, okay? I got a couple questions for you to work through. This is real homework. I'm going to be grading later, okay? I actually might. We'll work, we'll work on a grading rubric. I don't have a syllabus, but we'll work on it. Why do you believe that's the first question. Why do you believe this story about Jesus? What evidence have you experienced? What have you learned and studied? What convinced you to put your lot in with Jesus? If you have. Some of you are saying, I'm not there yet. I haven't quite thrown myself all the way in, and you're still working through those things. For you, I want you to answer this question, why don't you believe? What are those hang-ups, those hurts? What are those things that are holding you back? What, what, do you need to study to get over the line of faith? So what do you believe, and why do you believe it? The second question is, what have you experienced? When I was 17, I basically became a, a real soft, squishy agnostic, where I basically said, I don't know if I believe in Jesus, but I've had these experiences, these epiphanic experiences where I felt God draw near to me, and I couldn't set those aside. I couldn't pretend like those didn't exist. I couldn't tell myself. I, Inception hadn't been created as a movie, so I didn't have any sort of framework to say that it had been put in my mind. They were experiences that I had that I couldn't lay aside. So the quest, second question is, what have you experienced of God? How has he entered into your story? Where have you seen him at work? The third question I have for you is, what are you willing to risk to be a martus, to be a witness to this story? 
the New Testament and we're, what we're going to see in Acts is that the story is full of people who are on all sorts of a spectrum of how much they believed and what they were willing to risk for that belief. The ones who were closest to Christ said, this story is so important, I'm willing to give anything for it. I'm going to tell you, that's one of the reasons why I believe in this story is because 12 guys said, this is worth everything. They said, this truth is so important. They wouldn't have done that for a lie. They wouldn't have done that for a hoax. They wouldn't have done that for a prank. They would only have done that if they experienced something so compelling that they had to act. I want to ask you, what are you willing to risk for being the witness that God has called us to as his people? And here's my challenge. Over the next eight weeks, I want you to write out your story. I want you to write out your faith journey. Sit in your, in your journal or in your diary at night, and I want you to start working through your story of faith, okay? Start with a big story. Start with, when I was three and I was at VBS or whatever that story is, start with wherever it starts, write the whole thing out, and then we're going to do a little bit of work, and I'm going to share some tools with you. I want you to work it from the whole story, and then I want you to pare it down to like an elevator pitch, three to five minutes where you share why you believe and in a way that helps other people connect with you and connect with the story. Because this is what we do as followers of Jesus. Just like Jesus sent the disciples as witnesses, so the disciples have entrusted to you the story of Jesus to be witnesses to a world who don't understand the truth or the power of the gospel. So I want you to work on that. And then, so that's not the homework. That's just like half of the homework assignment. You ready? The second half of the homework assignment is that I want you to share it in some public way. And, I mean, we live in, a, in an age where that is easier than ever. Um, maybe that looks like a long Facebook post. Maybe it looks like a, a live video on social media. Maybe it looks like you share it as, you know, a toast at a birthday party. Whatever that looks like, I want you to take a public stand to share your story with people who don't know God. And the second thing I want you to do is uh, I want you to take it and I want you to share it with someone individually. I want you to look for an opportunity to have a spiritual conversation with someone in your life and share with them the hope that you have from this story and what it means for you. This is the way that the gospel moves forward. Witnesses stand up and say, Jesus is real, he's powerful, and it means everything, and let me show you how. That's the only way the gospel moves forward in our world, is all of us learn the tools of witnesses, which is speaking clearly, honestly, and straightforwardly about what we've seen, what we've heard, and what we've experienced. And I want you to imagine this group were about 120 people. You, you literally read that in the story. There was about 120 of them. That's about what we have around Redemption Hill in a given month. Just a little crew of about 120 of us with kids. And this 120 people, when given the Spirit of God, went forth to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria and to the ends of the earth and started a movement that hasn't stopped over 2,000 years because they said, I'm going to be a witness to what I've seen and what I've heard and what I've experienced. 
want to challenge you. What if God's Spirit moved in powerful ways and empowered us in such a way that we couldn't help but share what we've experienced from Christ as martus, as witnesses of the gospel? I think he could do something incredible. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I, I'm struck by how powerful the story is because Matthias didn't know what he was getting himself into. He barely understood what Jesus was teaching, but he had experienced you. He had heard your teachings. He had seen your death. He had seen you raise from the dead. He had seen you ascend on high. And now he had a story to tell. Lord God, like Matthias, each of us has a story to tell because we've experienced you. I pray that that starts to settle into our hearts, that our new identity, like throughout Acts we see, our identity is as witnesses, as ones who have seen and are compelled by the law of nature to stand up and say, I know this to be true, and it means everything to me. I pray, God, that that starts to transform us as we make commitments to you to share our story whenever we have an opportunity. I pray, God, I know that the only times I share my story is when it's the only thing to do. And I pray that there's, there's times in our lives these next few weeks where that's the only sensible thing to do is to share our story. And I pray that you're working ahead of us and your spirit is drawing people to yourself and bringing conviction and transformation and inviting them in. And when they hear the story, they say, yes, that's what I've been looking for. Lord God, by your power, do some work in our city, in our families. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.